in. All right. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesson. And the little pitter-patter of feet that you hear over there is Gustavo Osborne, who is uh, deciding he doesn't want to nap today, which is fine, which is fine. We're rolling with the punches. I called up Chris and informed him that I was in a brutally foul mood today. And uh, he's, I think he's got the right antidote because we're going to talk about something today that ties together a lot of themes that we've been talking about for the duration of the show. So, Chris, how are you today? David, I'm, I'm in a really good frame because, you know, I discovered that today is it's uh, Drake versus Taylor Swift. Oh, okay. And I don't mean Drake the singer. Mm -hmm. Sir Francis Drake. Mm -hmm. This was the day that Taylor Swift was born in 1989. You and I talked about Taylor last episode and uh, the fact that we've never heard any of her songs. Yeah. But this was also the day, going back a little bit further in time to the 16th century, when Sir Francis Drake took off on his first expedition to circumnavigate the world and I think it's phenomenal interesting that those two events come consecutively on my sort of news feed of what happened on this day in history you know and it says something about our notion of history how elastic and insipid it is sometimes elasticity is good sometimes it becomes just you know like old underwear. Uh -huh. uh, but it's the wisdom of the feed, you know, that somehow Sir Francis Drake and Taylor Swift can be mentioned in the same sentence. And that's uh, a kind of a sure sign of, of a cultural psychosis. So yeah. I thought that would be a good thing to share with you in your, in your grumpy mood. Yeah, absolutely. Up top... Do you have a band and an aphorism? Because I'm, I'm getting ready. To I do, I do, and the band will cheer you up. The band is called the Invisible Black Helicopters. Okay, and they are an African American band, and they're rappers mm -hmm. who also engage with like really interesting West African instruments, like from Mali. So they're already confusing the program but they're also conservative politically they really adore Candace Owens and all of their music is about just confusing the issue uh, their first their album is called don't chew with your head open mm, like and they have their first single is how much strangeness can you take and then i really like this one they take it's called hammer out a warning which is a line pulled out from you know if i had a hammer and they just completely mess with that folk song in terms of today's conflicted values mm. so that's my band that's great i love that and your aphorism for the day Okay. If the brain can be considered the principal organ of your nervous system, what is the principal organ of your curiosity system? I thought I'd have a question 
form for the aphorism. What's the principal organ of your curiosity system? My penis. It's an easy answer. No. The, um, the eyes, perhaps? Yeah, that, that's the first answer that comes to mind. And I think that's a valid answer. But I think it, it, it's conflicted when you then look at, obviously, blind people. Mm. Uh, mm. But it really sort of privileges that, that one sight. Um, and if you explore that relationship, that oscillation between visual perception and curiosity, and you really peel that back, because I think you can start to develop a framework of, of components and associations and networking and ripples that flow from curiosity. It's not as easy to do that with, with visual perception. It kind of, you know, it goes to conceptual, you know, perception, maybe vision in that sort of more abstract metaphorical sense. But it doesn't go really that far. And, you, and I think you, you get a, this huge sort of wonderful organic tower of vines and tentacles uh, potentially underneath the rubric of curiosity. Uh, I don't know, just a thought. But I think certainly, yeah, the answer would be uh, the eyes, yeah. vision, yeah. which is a conflict because, of course, we really don't think of the eyes as actually forming vision. We think of that as being... You know, and the optical uh, aspect of the brain. So there's issues there. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty complex question, especially as you said, because everything filters through the brain. So I don't know. I, I, I get that. I do like separating it out between the brain and the eyes. I, I choose to believe that they work independently of each other with no scientific backing whatsoever. I think my eyes see even if there's not a brain attached to them. Why? I don't know. Just because. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, okay. You know, yeah. but it, you know, I think the point of, of a good question is that it does uh, raise issues that, that aren't sort of immediately there on the surface, you know, mm -hmm. and you start thinking about, I mean, the very fact that we don't use the term curiosity system, uh, that that's kind of a metaphorical invention. Is, is odd because so much of our existence and you know fundamental survival depends on curiosity management doesn't right. it it does yeah that's awesome that's a really interesting way of thinking about it the curiosity system because hearing would be a part of that too obviously you hear a sure strange would. noise I mean it's the impetus for every every horror movie I can think of if there's a knock at the door or a sound coming from the basement uh I don't know if touch would it be immediately a curiosity organ, but it certainly is if you touch something and it doesn't feel like it's supposed to. Um, or if you feel you've been touched and you haven't, then you do have a, you have a nervous system sort of problem right, there. Right. But it's interesting what you mentioned about uh, hearing, because I think we greatly underestimate this, but there is some really powerful... Uh, direct reporting from uh, the schizophrenic community that auditory hallucinations can be far more disturbing than visual hallucinations yeah, because yeah. you know th it, th visual hallucinations don't really uh, or what the cognitive scientists call hard 
uh, hallucinations. Those don't really persist, we don't think, very, very long. Uh, right. They're more likely to persist uh, under um, uh, psychoactive drug effects than, than they are bouts of, of psychosis. But auditory hallucinations, that's a different kettle of, of eardrums, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's very weird, and I think we greatly underestimate the power of that. Of hearing things that aren't there. Yeah, I've had yeah. auditory hallucinations before, and I can confirm that they are much scarier than the ghosts that I've seen or the hallucinations that I've had under the influence of psychedelics. It, it is, it's disturbing because every auditory hallucination that I've ever had feels like someone talking right up on your ear. So it's, it's startling because you think, oh my goodness, somebody is very close to me. You know, I think everybody's had little ones before. They could probably tell what I'm talking about. Everybody knows the dream of falling and then waking up suddenly with a start. But we've probably also all had that, you know, your mother whispering in your ear right before you go to sleep and you start up and you think, oh my God. But uh, an extended auditory hallucination like that can be, well, can make you want to, you know, open your head up to let out all the devils, you know? Well, exactly, and a really good way to think of this is, is the phenomenon of, of apophenia, which is you know s perceiving order in random patterns. Right. If you think of the visual aspect, of that which is um, one of the most common, I had that just in, just in extreme form as a child. But you you know you see faces in pine knots and rust you know markings and scars on fences yeah. and, and things. But everybody, you know, you, you, it's like seeing um, shapes in the clouds, you know, um, rather like a whale, you know, from yeah. Hamlet. I mean, of course you can, people see those patterns and they're not uh, really distressed by them. But if you start to perceive music in your air conditioning system, or you start to hear voices in the ambient ventilation noises of a building. Mm -hmm. That's very different, you know. It's the same principle, seeing some sort of meaningful pattern uh, in, in completely random mm -hmm. designs, whatever the media. Uh, but the, the, the hearing aspect of that is, is really, really gets you, I yeah, think. Yeah, 100%, especially when you start hearing uh, Taylor Swift and her songs tell you to go buy an AR-15, that's, <laughs> that's when it gets really spooky. <laughs> well, I think that that's great. Okay. I love the idea of a curiosity system. Uh, today, you put it to me, as you often do, in this great way uh, where I call you up and I'm like, oh, I'm grumpy, blah, blah, blah. I'm complaining about, you know, book sales and I'm telling you, you know, I watched... Um, Brittany Griner come home from from Russia. They traded her for the Merchant of Death, but they got uh, they got Brittany Griner home, and she's playing her first game or doing her first slam dunk, and everybody's cheering. And I thought to myself, no matter how popular this is, it's not going to get anybody to watch the WNBA. Nope, still nobody's going to care. And then I thought to myself, wait a minute, is writing the WNBA of creativity? And it might be. It might be where there can be these moments that elevate the the medium to public consciousness. But at the end of the day, it's just unappealing. People just don't want to and engage with it. 
So, you know, I'm going through all this and then I start talking about how, you know, everything's so social mediatized and people are, are basically getting worse. I thought that uh, woke shit was going to wear itself out. I pretty much thought it was going to burn out and eventually everybody's going to come to their senses and be like, wait a minute, we're being, we're being a little silly and tribal about all this. Maybe we should, but it's, <clears throat> it's not, it's not, it's getting worse. It's, it seems to every week it just gets worse and worse. And uh, nobody wants to let off the gas because my cynical thought about it is that there's too much money to be made in pushing these kind of narratives forward. But then you brought it around to this idea of this whole cultural project that seems to be going on that deals explicitly with disembodiment and how disembodiment essentially moves the way that people think from from the inside, right? Like crafting thoughts and having a soul to the social, to the outside. When you're disembodied, you actually become a part of this social fabric that matters more than your individuality. So I just wanted to turn it over to you with that brief introduction and, and get some more of your thoughts on that. Okay, well, I am definitely ready to rock and roll on that. But we have uh, overleaped your imaginative challenge for this episode. Do you want to just flash into that briefly, and then I'll yeah. pick up yeah. the disembodiment line? Sounds good. Okay, I think you'll have fun with this. Uh, back when Coca-Cola was trying to introduce new Coke... The then CEO of the company made an astonishing claim that no one really took issue with. He said that if everything physical and material about the Coca-Cola company and all its products, all its signage, everything, were to mysteriously, magically vanish, we could nonetheless go to the financial institutions of the world and borrow against the value of the brand and be back in business relatively quickly. Um, we'd have to redo everything, but he said, con you know, conceptually, it's not a problem, and financially, it wouldn't be. And I thought, when I heard that, I flipped out, and it still flips me out. But your challenge is a different kind, but it's, it's related. I want you to imagine a world in which everything that we considered to be pornography mysteriously magically vanishes as in the Coke CEO's analogy everything disappears not the desires and interests in the market so to speak mm -hmm. but all of the product the currently existing product anything that can be put under that umbrella given that label of porn disappears what happens and how long does it take okay i just want you to have a free reign how you take us through that scenario okay i like that is that clear that is clear okay i got it i got it all right okay well to the idea of disembodied well this is coming together out of my work on my memory book which is really expanded into uh, 
a merger of, of ideas of memory in our mental faculties with the larger state of consciousness and the state of dreaming. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd like to roll that out, some of that thinking in the new year, just to sort of test the waters and see if some of my uh, squirrely logic is, is working. But it seems to me that if you look at modernity, which has been one of our sort of one of the things that we're seeking on this sort of lost explorers expedition mm -hmm. uh, a definition of, of modernity some more precision in terms of how we define that that era uh, that's that mindset what is it what does it mean and I think you can look at it and see that there has been a movement fundamentally out of the body yeah. I think the space program and, and you know William Burroughs you know calling us we're, we're we're going into space well we're already in space <laughs> that's that's the nature of planet Earth you know and we have had great periods of of trying to explore what we mean by the mind the soul and the cosmos not just in an astronomical sense but also in a spiritual sense and all of that has been sort of falling away in a kind of quiet decay around concerns about the body. And I think the Industrial Revolution really hammered home the whole thing is, well, we're machines. So we want new and better machines. So that's the technological singularity of uploading into some sort of robotic device, getting out of the body that way. For many people, that doesn't seem like a real possibility financially. So they want to do it ideologically. And social media and the technology extensions of the internet have made a whole ecosystem where that can now be possible. And I know students who spend some real serious thought time crafting an avatar, a handle, and doing decoration of a kind of you know virtual reality existence. So technology, industrialization, consumerization, everything has atomized us out of the body, both negatively as in outside our control, but has put pressure on us to control what we can. Well, we don't seem to have much confidence in our embodied ability to control much of anything including our own bodies you know no we don't want that responsibility that's kind of what embodiment starts with and so the flight from responsibility the uh, pipe dreams of technology and technological upload uh, virtual reality and social media all of this removes us as much as we can from the body. And that's where a lot of our physical alertness is vanishing. We're just simply, many things are structurally invisible to us because we're structurally blind. Um, and that impacts on things like memory, very definitely. But I think that what all, the difference that I'm starting to see between the extremes and absurdities of wokeness relative to some of the counterculture ideals, which also had some silliness to them. They weren't all great. 
and not by any means. And they certainly didn't succeed in many ways. Uh, but I think that there was a, still a very powerful sense of embodiment, which we have lost. And in doing that, we have lost the private psychological level. We've lost the uh, spiritual community level, and we've certainly lost the cosmological level. You know, and I don't mean just the astronomy side of that. You know, the James Webb Telescope is great, but you know that's not the same thing as as a sense of being at home in the cosmos. And I would say, and this ties in with with many things that you've expressed about the 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 fear of the constant feed, the the mediaization of everything. Once people are afraid to be alone in their own minds, well, they are. They're alone and afraid. And, and if, you know, your game is control, well, you've got them where you want them, yeah. you know? What do you think the, the embodied elements of the 60s counterculture were? How, how would you explain that? Well, to go back to an earlier um, theme of ours, when we were looking really anthropologically at some of the differences between indigenous cultures and new, you know, developed nation, mm -hmm. we talked about memory and how, you know, in a, in a remote village in the New Guinea highlands, if, if an individual dies, some important aspect of their cultural memory system dies. Right. In the developed nation sense, we think all of it's offloaded, it's off-site, it's in the cloud, or, you know, it's not. Whatever that person's memory value was, which probably isn't very much, we don't really respect that, uh, we think somehow there's this bigger institutional thing, this giant mainframe, of cultural memory that that's going to you know carry on in the zombie apocalypse and that's may not be true and it's a pretty tragic way to, of looking at things in any case but I think there was in the 60s still a generation an influence generation of people who were grounded in physicality they did have some memory of two or three generations behind them, so to speak. don't like that preposition, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a much greater sense of context, whereas now people are really have the goldfish mindset and, and really don't, I mean, I can't, the, I think I've told you and listeners that I do um, an experiment with students uh, showing them a hundred photographs of, of important people from the 20th century, political leaders, non-political leaders, uh, entertainment stars, music, sports, movies, etc. And it is astounding how pathetic the cultural literacy is. I mean, it's really to a very dim level of just recognition at all but no sense of, of importance, you know, of, of cultural significance at all. And, I mean, that's the dark ages right now. Yeah. When, when you, you've got what is clinically a kind of Alzheimer's right. disassociation from memory and connection in people who are uh, 
cardiovascularly uh, very young. So all of those theories about brain decay, I think are a little bit, you know, deficient to say the least. But that's one aspect of it. I like the connection that you've made between uh, physical embodiment being a part of your environment but also mental embodiment as a kind of engagement with memory, history, stories, and tradition. So my question to you then is if the analogy goes, uh, physical embodiment is to mental embodiment, how physically would you characterize the mental state of today? Working, Working backwards, I guess. I think that it has moved to a point where it's dysfunctional on the most basic physical levels for a great number of people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's become it's become such a widespread disease if you want to think of it in pathology terms mm-hmm. that this the and a telltale phrase is the new normal. Yeah. You know, yeah. if I hear if I hear someone in front of me say that, I'm not going to be fully responsible for my actions. No. I am sick to death of that stupid phrase. The new normal. Yeah. Ugh. No, I fuck that. I can't stand that either. It makes me think of uh, the bubble boy. Right. That <laughs> that's that's the metaphor, isn't it? It's the bubble boy who can't contact anything because his uh you know munchausen's by proxy mother uh, thinks that he will die if he comes into contact with the world so we i'm i like the physicality metaphor because for me at least it creates a picture in my mind i work i work good with symbols and metaphor that's how i understand things so if you think of a guy who's in the woods and winter is coming and so he's got to dig himself a shelter just to get through the night that's physical embodiment and he's using techniques that were probably taught to him by his father or grandfather when he's in that hole he's more than likely praying to gods whose stories he knows because they've been passed down and they're part of his cultural lexicon that is that's kind of a mental a mental framework that we would want to be at and when you contrast that with somebody who's in a room that is full of star wars posters and gi joe action figures and he's sitting literally in a bubble interacting through the controller that he's allowed to touch because his mother's wiped it down with eight clorox wipes before giving it to him that's kind of that's it, right? Did I nail it or, 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 or what? Oh no, you did nail it, and I've and you and you're, you've you've triggered some some riffing here, uh, as you do. There was a great, uh, you know, it's stupid, but still, it was it was memorable. An episode of Sequest with Roy Scheider, the guy who was in Jaws, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, great actor. I love and well, oh God, he was in so many things. Um, but the episode of Sequest, they come upon this uh, civilization. I, I can't remember what the mechanism was. I, I didn't have really any access to TV out in the, the Australian bush. So it was really, it was like being on another planet. 
and I happen to get this one episode. But they find this city in ruins, and there are these two gigantic uh, Transformer-style robots in the shape of, like, dinosaurs that are having this combat, and they're destroying the city. And as it turns out, Roy and the team discover that the robots are unmanned, they're drones, mm. and they're being operated by these two teenagers, a boy and a girl, who've never met each other and don't know each other. And Roy gets them to stop playing with these giant robots, mm. which is like something out of my book, Zanesville. And, uh, you know, he just, you know, gets them, introduces them, and, and they start touching and, you know, petting and making out, yeah, you know, as yeah. young people might do. Um, I, I wonder how much, you know, making out there is today in this diverse and inclusive society of ours. I don't know about that. I I don't see, I don't, I, you know, oh, no, it's I live in a town. No, it's a wasteland out there. I do not envy my... <clears throat> single brothers and sisters who just genuinely want to hook up and have sex and maybe even have a relationship with people it seems like a complete and total nightmare from the reports that i've heard i'm glad to hear you say that even though i'm sad for younger folks because you know i'm out and about doing you know and like i'm a kind of uh an I like it, you know, outdoor romping. That's always been a really big, important part of my deal. And I have not seen anybody ever in this area, and I'm talking about the whole Las Vegas Valley, and now in the Boulder City or you know, a small town, Lake Me. There are, there's, you know, I've never seen anybody humping and bumping cars, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't see... Uh, there's no make-out sort of joint where people are, you know, getting it on and doing drugs. Mm -hmm. You know, I just don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they're doing drugs. I know, you know, that hasn't stopped. And maybe maybe the parents are just all going, yeah, just go hump in your room, you know. Uh, that wasn't sort of what my, you know, that wasn't what was done. You needed a car or a friend's house when their parents were gone or, you know, or you did it in the woods or you did it in an alley or... You know, but yeah, Rios and I, I don't see a, that had a shorthand for whenever we would be interrupted because when we were 17, we drove out to the woods and we're going at it, and a group of uh, possum hunters showed up. So this big truck rolled by with a kind of a rack on the back and all these possums strung up by their their tail, and totally killed the mood because it was very grotesque to look at. And so now, from then on, you know. 19 years later whenever we're interrupted we say damn possum hunters and that's kind of our little that's our code for it <laughs> you know this is just so weird because i have not told you anything about this but i have uh a music piece and a video that i'm i'm going to uh to post called possum as an opossum the american possums not the australian possum very different <laughs> American ones look really weird. And this is one that had drowned in Lisa's pool. Mm -hmm. And it looks quite beautiful. I mean, it's dead, but there's a beautiful sort of... Uh, so I kind of consider it weirdly uh, dance music, as in a meditation on the notion of dance, because it's very still, you know, and there's a kind right. of gorgeous stillness to this death. But I mean, 
possums don't come up that that often, and I think that's a weird synchronicity that I think is cool. I'm going to have to send you the video. When I was in the dark times and I was at a friend of mine's house who was a mechanic, he owns his own garage now, but at the time he had a maybe 800 square foot house that we would all do drugs in, and the living room had no furniture. It was just covered in car parts, so transmissions and engines and all. He didn't have a garage to put this stuff in, so he kept it there. But because there was no room in his house, we would go to his tornado shelter out back to trip out. So we were in this tornado shelter, looking at the Black Widow's spinning webs, and one of the guys said, dude, come check this out, this is crazy. And we go over to the fence, the chain link fence, and there's a possum hanging onto it. And it won't move, but we're shining our, our phone lights on it, and it's just hissing. It's just all fours are gripped onto the chain link, and it's going Yeah, and what a sound that is. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so visceral and so embodied, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's visceral and embodied, and we were in uh, quite a state to enjoy that spectacle. I think we all thought that it was simultaneously scary and funny. But, <clears throat> yeah, embodied. I See, I miss, I miss all that, and I, I wish that people could still be having experiences like that. Um, and this is at the heart of my current depression and how I feel about all this kind of stuff is that is that it truly does feel like stuff like this is slipping away you know I mean so many people you'll see them communicate to the world through their TikToks or whatever where are they they're always in their bedroom you know they're just they're inside they're not out doing things although I do like watching skateboard videos and I like watching these psychopaths who will free solo the sides of skyscrapers have you ever seen these people who will yeah sky? I, yeah I get a thrill out of watching those videos but for the most part it's inside and it's a discourse on a discourse on a discourse on a discourse and their minds are trapped in a bubble which means that their minds have no immune system continuing on with this metaphor when you introduce an idea to you know I saw something recently where a person said uh, was responding to Elon Musk and Elon Musk had tweeted my pronouns are prosecute and Fauci right so yes I, I thought you'd see that I got I got a kick out of that one <laughs> I liked that but um, one of the comments said oh what's next Holocaust denial and I said well this is clearly a symptom of a very poor mental immune system for the inability to take in what Musk is saying that this corrupt bureaucrat might in fact be a corrupt bureaucrat who did some things that got a lot of people killed um, the the link is immediately made to things like Holocaust denial uh, Sandy Hook denial anti-semitism racism misogyny homophobia transphobia there's a whole it's a symptom of a bad immune system when the immune system just starts napalming everything, right? That's what was killing people with COVID was the cytokine storm. It was the body so unused to having to protect itself like that that it just went nuclear and ended up killing the host that it was supposed to protect. But you could see that mentally, right? Just the, the immediate jump to, uh, oh, you have a, a semi-innocuous thought about uh, the character of Anthony Fauci, you must be a Holocaust denier. It's a poor mental immune system. That's all it is. 
and it, it leads directly to the the necessity of, of hyperbole and, and megaphoning yeah, everything. Right. Because you're really not sure where where anyone is. You know? Right. If everything has become structurally sort of invisible or wobbly and right. you know, mucusy, mm-hmm. uh, you're not sure where, you know, boundaries are. So you overstate all your gestures become exaggerated and kind of ridiculous. And I'll give, it was interesting. I uh, I listened to uh, the the musician Don Cherry and his just amazing band. He was part of the whole sort of free jazz sort of movie. He's a he's a trumpeter uh, and just an amazing amazing world music talent. Um, but he's playing all these just phenomenal cool instruments. And the band is just, it's just this rich textural sort of thing. And then, for whatever reason, I hopped over to look at this uh, uh, sort of Dembo uh, uh, DJ sort of guy in another video. And I had the sound off for a moment. And I was just watching him and I thought, God, he looks like a complete dick. (laughs) You know, it's just, it's absurd. It would, it just looks like bad vaudeville slapstick comedy. It just, it's silly. And and he's not playing any instruments at all. And, but the gestures become more and more frantic and ridiculous because there isn't any real music there. There's no expertise. There's no embodiment at all. I mean, none. Uh, and that's, of course, my personal taste speaking there. But I, I do think that you could just turn the sound down on both Don Cherry's performing with all these beautiful uh, African instruments and a whole series of cool trumpets, including his little pocket trumpets uh, and his percussion band. And it's just, you know, the intensity of that live music. And then this DJ sort of guy. And even with no sound, I think the point would be very clear, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I think that I've noticed something very similar in the majority of pop music these days. It does feel like a lot of spectacle without much behind it. Most notably in the, the facial tattoos that people are getting. I think the facial tattoos are a very potent metaphor for the thing that we're talking about here because facial tattoos have had very important roles to play in many indigenous people throughout the world. You know, there's a lot of cool facial tattoos that are tribal markings or that mean something. And you see now that even the design of facial tattoos, you know, somebody will have a flame on their cheek and a dagger by their eye and a cat across their forehead and Pornhub.com over their chin. And it's just, it's, it's this slapdash collage of atomized points that don't really mean anything. <laughs> they can't even manage, a th- you know, any kind of coherent theme on a pretty limited, well-defined canvas. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it really is true. It's like... I mean, it, it's like a terrible sort of uh, 
sort of smoothie meal. You know, you've had what could be a beautiful three-course meal and you've dumped it into a blender and just, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and then it just plops out on the, you know, yeah. the, on the table. The, it's just, to, The disembodied element, though, <clears throat> is basically what I'm seeing here is that the, the answer is that people... This is an emergency. This is a, a, a red alarm. Like, we've got to... The internet needs to be turned off for a couple years. The whole thing needs to be shut down for just a little... I'm not saying get rid of the internet forever, but I'm making an uncharacteristic pro-big government claim here that the government needs to just come in and say, all right, we're turning this thing off until we can figure out what the hell's going on. Because this is, this is too much. Uh, well, look, I hear you on the turning off. I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure about the big government idea. I think, the, I don't even think we have any idea of the size of the government. Yeah. You know, oh, this um, is pure fantasy. If you imagine a world where somebody could do that, that's that's what I'm kind of saying. I was saying that to just sort of illustrate the, you know, the five alarm fire nature of the crisis that we're talking about right now. Well, let me look sort of positively mm -hmm. because you're you're in the grumpy mood and I'm not. So I'm going yeah. to be positive. Okay. Uh, but I am going to point out two critical areas that have fallen down. And I think that what another way of thinking about uh, embodiment is uh, really arriving at a mature and profound peace with structure. And, and a certain form of coherence. Yeah. You know, we don't have to say there's only one. I mean, that's the whole point of, of a really rich, nuanced understanding of, of coherence is that there are many coherences, there are many, many convergences yes. and oscillations that make that, that larger sense of, of coherence possible. But in terms of the embodiment of, of individuals, uh, the contentment of, of psychology and physiology, and then the overflow good vibe to families, communities, and to larger social systems, would really hinges on a couple of tremendous failures of recent times. Mm -hmm. One, and this goes back to uh, the difference between counterculture era people and now the woke era, I'll tell you one big difference is work. Mm -hmm. I started work when I was nine years old, and I'm really proud of that. That was really, really important to me. It was safety uh, following um, my childhood rape. It was a way to earn money. It was uh, freedom and independence. It was a recouping of self and confidence and a discovery of a larger world beyond my family, beyond school and my peer group. That was just absolutely essential. And you had people working and learning skills and you had in many parts, like in Australia and New Zealand, you had an apprenticeship program. So people weren't forced down the maw of, of academic scholastic school when that wasn't their thing. They were given you know, skills and taught you know, personal value and self-respect and they delivered value back to their communities. So it, I can't see anybody really that young working, except since I've moved to Boulder City. And it's, I have to say it's predominantly the young chicks. 
I don't see uh, young men doing heavy lifting and the work that my generation did. And I don't want, I don't have any problem saying that. If I sound old, well, good. Uh, I think we've really, really let the side down in terms of young people working and young men need to do more physical. I mean, really, come on. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. it's quite pathetic. If you think about who people get to do the difficult physical labor in our American societies, I think the answers come pretty quickly. And it's not a good reflection on society as a whole. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is, and this ties in with our popular music references. You know, this, and this can be absolutely AI proven that chord changes in popular songs are on a very, very steady decline mm-hmm. since the golden age of, of AM radio. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really songwriting as a craft has, sure, it's changed form and it's not all for the, the bad. I, I'm not going to say that. But I was thinking about that and other people are thinking about that too Mm -hmm. and one of the uh, best black cultural uh, theorists and and music critics wrote a piece about it and uh, he said if you want to know what was the secret of a lot of the northeastern and really mainstream black music of the 1960s he said the public schools mm. in Detroit, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and not just Detroit. I mean, there were, you know, Sh- Chicago, Oakland was very strong in music. Um, Memphis had a strong music program. Uh, St. Louis, you know, all of this, you know, this worry about who we are now. There used to be more sense of where, you know, where we are, mm-hmm. where we're from. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, that used to be really important. And the school systems provided a lot of implicit structure, in, particularly in, in music. Uh, and I think the sports programs also kind of reflect that. That's, sports maybe survives a little bit, but that's, the music programs have almost entirely collapsed. You know? Mm-hmm. So the, uh, I think those are two other ways to look at embodiment and the problems we face now. It's interesting that you bring that up because I caught wind of a kerfluffle on music Twitter, which I'm not a part of because I'm not a musician, but I saw it anyhow. And it was an argument over the lack of key changes in modern pop songs and yeah. how important key changes were. And the argument against key changes from the peanut gallery was that they're elitist, you know, like, oh, you're, you're, if you make your music a little bit more difficult, oh, Jesus. You're now check this out. This is a very common refrain that you see everywhere. If your novel is lightly experimental, you can get the elitist uh, charge leveled at you. If your film has a bit of experimentation, same deal, uh, visual art, everything. So you have this contingent of people in the United States, mostly young people, who seem to think that it is somehow elitist or gatekeepery or whatever to introduce complexity into art in any way, shape, or form, to not constantly please the, the, the audience. Now, my buddy Jordan Harper has a great definition of pornography, which he says, pornography is anything 
anything that which denies its audience nothing, uh, which I think is great. But I think that mm -hmm. these people have the wrong idea of what the word elitism means. So elitism is about stratification. It's about keeping uh, poor people poor, uncultured people uncultured. To my mind, there's nothing less elitist than as a person from a lower socioeconomic class learning these forms and learning to appreciate this art that's not supposed to be meant for you, right? By actually elevating yourself that way, that is an anti-elitist project, you know? So I just, I think that, the, that people have this whole thing wrong and it speaks to them wanting to be, wanting to, that's the most disturbing part, Chris, to this whole thing is how, how disembodied people want to be right how con yes. contextless yes. they want to be i you know i'm a conspiracy theorist but this is from the ground up this is what a lot of people want they want their music oh absolutely it is absolutely it is you know it's it's i mean i'm sure i'd i'd reckon that at least half of professional artists of all stripes would love to become more formally inventive uh, but they also have bills to pay and an audience to maintain, and it's not what their audience wants. So it really starts from a ground-up level, just this idea of kind of bettering yourself and getting even the mildest form of, uh, I should say, the mildest sense of adventure when it comes to exploring the things that you are supposed to ostensibly, that you claim to love. Look, I think that is a beautiful statement of so much of what the whole Lost Explorers project is about is to reinstate the notion of, of adventure and some call to action, a little call to courage and, and engagement with, with life. It's interesting uh, that um, that word elitism, because that's attracted my attention. Uh, and if you do an AI-driven computational linguistic media analysis, around that word you find that almost you know 90 percent of of the the mentions of it are hostile in the way that you you mention and that there's a spectrum of, of hostility from you know a sneer to something you know kind of accusing it of, of almost you know being criminal uh, and yet it's interesting there is still one aspect of uh, cultural activity where it's it's used in a positive sense mm -hmm. and i think it may be telling it's it's sports hmm. mm -hmm. to be an elite athlete is is still right. considered to be a very good thing that's correct whereas to be an elite scholar or an elite artist n no you know so it's interesting that that dysfunction that 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 is i think a real interesting schism fault line to to pursue um but that that I think speaks with beautiful inverse logic to this problem of disembodiment. Mm -hmm. I, I think you could connect it and say, where do we allow certain forms, certain body shapes and certain proclivities to really you know, get positive attention? The male physicality, for instance, a certain kind of physique, a certain kind of power and strength and, and aggression it's really only in sports 
you know right we're not really keen on seeing it otherwise you know unless it's maybe in the movies you know stylized as a dream of of kind of, it's kind of like taxidermy the cinema is is taxidermy you know right. we were right. we remember the wilderness that we've you know we've destroyed um but what do you think of that, that there's a kind of strange thing at play there? And I think you could also look at the, the, the female equivalent of um, so many of the, the female superstars today um, looking more and more like comic book characters, yeah. you know, yeah. exaggerations. And they get implants and all this body work and it's... It's grotesque yeah, in a kind of strange way. Yeah. I think Madonna, for instance, is really going down a Sunset Boulevard sort of path. She, like she the, gets uh, weirder every day. She looks like Ron Perlman in The Beauty and the Beast. He's got all that makeup on. She's got a very leonine facial structure right now. But I like this a lot because when you're talking about elite athletes, what makes elite athletes great is their ability to break records and push the human body through the vehicle of this sport to places that it's never been before. We think that people like LeBron James are cool because of how good they are at that game. And another part of that is invention. So I'm talking out of my ass because I'm not a huge basketball fan, but I know that there is a sort of a technique, like a triangular... Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm sorry, I'm not a big sports guy, but it's a it's a way of, you know, driving the ball up that wasn't invented until the '60s or the '70s, and now it's common practice in uh, in basketball. That's what everybody does because it's so effective. Now, when you compare that to art, it's really the same thing. As a writer, you are trying to both formally invent. You're trying to to change what's come before with knowledge of what's come before and you're trying to outdo it and you're trying to push it and unfortunately oh, there's somebody at my door let's see who this is the fun of doing a podcast during the day is it there is somebody at the door hi hello, hello. Uh, i'm jordan with file pest management sure to do your bi-monthly pest control service okay uh, have you had any activity inside no, we've been pretty good. I haven't really seen very many bugs in here. Okay, but. that's good. That's what we'd like to hear. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, would you like for me to treat it anyways or just do the outside today? Or um, Well, my son's napping right now, so just the outside, please. Just the outside? Yes, okay. Sir. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. You'll want to keep the dogs in for about an hour once I'm done treating. Okay. All right. And I'll knock on the door and let you know as soon as I'm done. All right. Would you rather you. me knock? Or, yeah, not or, or did you just want me to leave? <laughs> Actually, that's better. Okay, yeah, okay, that's yeah. Dude, I want to. We're, we're trying to do that. We're supposed to knock cool. and let you know. Perfect. So, yeah. I'll, I won't knock. Down. Right. I want to wake up your kid. I got cool. four at home. I get it. Yeah, <laughs> you, you know what's up. Yeah, right. yeah, for sure. Do uh, remember to keep the dog in, like yes, I said, sir. for about an hour once I'm done treating, just Absolutely. to make sure everything's dry. All right, thanks, so, sir. All right, thank you. All right, bye, bye. Well, that was fantastic. I love the guy just on his own. But you know what's really, really another synchronicity? And this is just odd. My pest guy is coming out this afternoon. Is he? It's, it's going on noon here. <laughs> and he's due between 1 and 3 yeah. today. Today, okay? <laughs> it's just weird. Isn't that fun? You know? And, and there, there you get a nice little riff from the, the larger cosmos on the whole thing of embodiment. Mm-hmm. Because... I mean, what's more embodied than, you know, potential pest infestations, yeah, you know? Yeah. That's, 
that's something you can't ignore you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's not about your avatar and the metaverse that's you know no, it's a little bit closer to home yeah yeah but he goes out there every day and has to spray people's yards and stuff and that was fun i'll leave all that in that's a nice little garnish on the episode. yeah no i i dug him he was great he's yeah. <laughs> a nice guy um but yeah, no, I think that your sports metaphor, just to kind of wrap up my point, which I, I was, I had pretty much made at that point, was that one, sports, it's it's encouraged to push boundaries, and art is decidedly, uh, that's discouraged in art, right? Like a good book is the book that everybody's already read before. Well said. Yeah, which I disagree with, obviously. I know you do too, but it's 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 the major problem, you know. As as artists, um, the the major issue is that you know what we just said. It's it, nobody's keeping us down uh, in terms of these institutions, right? I mean, it's it's fun to uh, you know talk about how it's hard to get agents and publishers aren't looking for guys like us whatever that means we'll leave it at that but the or guys or guys in general <laughs> but the thing is is that i'm not the problem is i'm not sure uh, audiences are either you know like they don't like the problem is chris is that a lot of people don't want the cool shit that we make and that's that's a tough pill to swallow but i think it's i hear you i hear you i do um I think that the part of the answer is that it's not for those people that we, you know, Correct. make what we do, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and we have to accept that we're just going to do it, you know, anyway. And because we're not sort of goldfish, we we have a sense of history and have a pantheon of heroes who went through some just absurd atrocities, you know, often. Um, and we measure our own discomfort and distress against, you know, some of those heroic survival people who gave us the culture that we were able to enjoy at all, you know? I mean, how did, I mean, the other day I, I was, um, well, I was actually scavenging for some art materials at the uh, Goodwill, uh, seeing if there was anything that was, was cool, because uh, I wanted to do something dimensional. But there's uh, the, the, the Southern Nevada Music Center next door, and they sell Steinway pianos. Mm. And I went in, and it's just beautifully quiet. And of course, there aren't, you know, I was the only person in there at the, you know, just midday afternoon sort of thing. And I look at the salesperson who, you know, comes over, but, but is polite. And I said, do you mind if I sit down and just, you know, he said, oh, no, please, please do. And, you know, I sat down at this grand piano. And that that description is not only apt, I think is understated. You know, how did that piece of technology come to be invented ever? Mm -hmm. Given, you know, think about it. Our, could our society create something like that? I don't think so today. Mm -hmm. I really don't, mm -hmm. you know? And, and where that kind of invention and precision 
and expertise is happening is in little mysterious island worlds yeah. that are not part of the scene. And unfortunately, you know, with an interest in writing and the publishing industry, and it is an industry, uh, we've seen a, a kind of, you know, a, the sunset in that world, you know? That's not where uh, the great excitement uh, is coming from, yeah. culturally. Yeah. It's just not, yeah. you know? Yeah, I wonder, this might be veering more into shop talk, but I do wonder how to reach those islands. Because I personally, my goal at the end of the day is to write books for a living. And the books... Uh, I can't compromise on the quality or the content of the books. And I know that I'm not a beautiful and unique snowflake who is you know, singular and the only person who thinks stuff like this is cool in the world. And I agree with you that it, a lot of the neat stuff that's happening right now is on these <clears throat> you know, archipelagos and weirdos who are outside of the scene. But how do you find them? How do you find the others? <laughs> That's the great question of the human adventure. That's a beautiful, how do you find the others? Or, said it another way, who are my real neighbors? You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I, first of all, I, I, I think that it's a finding, searching, treasure hunt, adventure, uh, you know, challenge. So you, you have to get into that mindset. And it's in the seeking that, that you know, everything is, is happening. Right. Um, right. But, you know, there's also a, uh, you know, time and chance happeneth to all men, mm. as mm -hmm. uh, Ecclesiastes says, I think. So it's about, um, it's about cultivating an inner endurance strength. I uh, am a big David Goggins fan. Are you familiar with David Goggins? I, that name doesn't, I, fill me in. I, I'll, I may get there, I may not. He's a former Navy SEAL who... Oh, yes, yes, yeah, yes, okay, got it, got it. endurance athlete, and he... Talks yes. a lot about being tough and sucking it up and going down into the pain cave. He's like, when you're at your lowest and you want to quit and you feel that evil creeping up on you, he says you have to embrace that evil. You want to go into the darkness. You want to exist in this place that's just uninhabitable by most people. And I dig that. I dig that. And I think that that is the uncomfortable answer for... Uh, people who are in grumpy moods such as myself right now nobody wants to hear that everybody wants to hear the answer of well I have a solution for you here's what you do but no the answer is you just eat shit and keep moving there's nothing else to be done right you just don't stop you just don't quit right right well you know um, you're, you're absolutely correct in the sense that that's not a popular message no. Um, but it is for certain people, and I think that for starters, you know, we need to adjust our demographic hopefulness, uh, which is really another way of saying we need to be reasonable. And, and being reasonable and is, is connected to being alert yeah. and to have confidence and self-confidence, but to, to have it for good reason and not insane reason, to not be part of, of the delusional atmosphere of our times. And I've got a lot more to say on that as I roll out um, 
some of these new thoughts on how the memory book has evolved into a broader uh, call for a unified field theory of, of consciousness and some suggestions about not necessarily what, what that would look like, but I actually have some experimental techniques of, of maybe how to build it, you know, how to build that structure or, or grow it if we want something more organic. And uh, I'm looking forward to rolling that out in the new year because courage figures very prominently in that. And I think that one of the things that will come out of my ramblings is a little bit more definition of what psychological and intellectual courage looks like, not just physical combative uh, emergency uh, situation, you know, courage looks like because that can be too easily sort of abstracted into tabloid heroism you know and then we can position that as something well I can't ever do that or I would do of course I'd do that if I were in that situation you know and that's already deeply disembodied and abstracted I'm talking about something more that questions that that we ask ourselves things that go on inside our private psychic space that are confrontational. Mm -hmm. How much of that can we, you know, uh, deal with? And one of the taglines for this approach is, um, you know, whenever you're feeling lonely, maybe you're crowded. You know, mm. maybe maybe you're not so alone in there. You know, mm. and uh, you got to do some internal diplomacy. How about that? Um, loneliness, you're dead right, because loneliness is never the experience of, in my case at least, of emptiness. It, it does feel more like a room packed full of unwanted guests. Yes. That's dead right. Yes. Yep. And if you have ever experienced like a really acute, serious, uh, survival level anxiety of loneliness for whatever reason however you know authentic the physical experience or however deep the clinical psychological experience is it's invariably a sense of claustrophobia it's not the the open you knowness it, it's suddenly the sense of things closing in and other people other other presences other you know it, it is a sense of being crowded within, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very, very interesting darkness to explore. Yeah. I like, I'd like to leave that there. I think that's, that turned into a really good episode. Um, and you've brought up some things that I need to chew on. I love this idea of loneliness. I'm going to think more about elitism. And where do you think, where, where would you take this next? Because this is very, this is exciting stuff. This feels like uh, a well-articulated and actionable episode, right? With like with some real takeaways that, that people can use. Good. Oh, I, I I think so too. That's my uh, that's my take out. Um, well, for next time, I'd like to do a little bit of a embodiment disembodiment case study of someone I know who is connected to a lot of the issues of our time, top of very topical issues that we've talked about. Uh, she's one of these people who is still very much into COVID anxiety and is very committed to 
uh, mask wearing and has talked to me about um, with a little bit of self-awareness that, that the COVID uh, hysteria of the last couple of years has played to her agoraphobia, right. which is often thought to be one of the most common phobias. And it's also one of the most misunderstood ones linguistically because it literally means sort of fear of going out of one's house, of being out in the open. Fear of open spaces is often what people think of it as. Uh, but it's really fear of the marketplace. That's what its origins mean in, 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 in the, the Greek etymology. And so it's fear of going out into the social arena, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and pictures of people shopping in Walmart in their pajamas are kind of a, a, a strange riff on that, of people not sort of remembering the boundaries and how to play the social game. But I said to her, okay, so fear of the marketplace, let's just explore that. She's a, a writing type of person. She was willing to play that. I said, think about like the main market in Harare, mm-hmm. in Zimbabwe. You know, mm-hmm. there's no national currency that's established. People, it's just, I said, think about a market in Mexico City or Marrakesh. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's some real tangible reasons to feel a little bit anxious in those environments. There are a lot of people, there are smells and noises and strange things. I mean, think about weird Asian markets where there are eels and snakes being sold and you know fried insects. And there's a lot of, of foreign stuff that you could project into that model. And a lot of certainly just basic crowding, people, noise, you know, pressure. And so it's entirely different than, than fear of being out in the open or leaving your house, you know? I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. come on. That's a really good, tangible example that's very common, I think, about how embodiment is misunderstood today. We're simply so out of touch with it, you know? We can really think, oh, having to put on, you know, some underwear and proper clothes is kind of a, you know... It's a it's a stretch for some people today, you know. It is. You see it online all the time. It's a meme that is kind of a joke about oh, gotta put on pants today, and I don't think it's funny. I don't think it's cute. I don't think that being, uh, you know, lazy and you know can't be bothered to just put on basic appearances to go out to the store. I just I find it so distasteful. People who are like real real agoraphobes or real antisocial like oh i'll just door dash everything go shop for your groceries right well and then this plays directly with with perverse inverse logic right of why then people feel the need to constantly expose deeply private things about their identity and talking about you know their behaviors Keep your, you know, squishy bits to yourself is what I say, you know? Have a little bit of, of just self-respect. Yeah, we, don't, we don't all want to hear about that. We don't want to hear about your festering chest wound, you know? No. Whatever. No. I kept my, my chest and back thing surgeries pretty, you know, yeah. under under like, wraps. Oh, look, I, I mentioned was, maybe I was, the number of stitches, I but, you know. I was stabbed between the ribs. Do you want to see this disgusting wound? No. No, I don't. I would rather not see that. I'm good, thanks. 
We don't want to hear about all. Yeah, exactly. Everyone feels like now that, well, they can just, you know, wear whatever they want mm -hmm. and share whatever they want. And a lot of us just don't want, it's just too much information, mm -hmm. you know? I'm, I'm friends just, with a lot of gay guys and they talk very explicitly about, you know, their ex. And I'm like, man, I'm good. But women too, you know, like whenever it's a post, like, oh, on my period again, I think to myself, yeah, didn't need to know that. Didn't, you know, that's, that seems like none of my business, to be honest with you. It's like, would you want me to report to you every time I took a shit? Probably not. You'd probably get a little tired of that after a while. If you called me up and I said, oh, just went poop, Chris, you'd be like, David, why? <laughs> why? We have to have a chat. <laughs> Why do you keep, you know, telling me about this? And it's like, well, what? You don't want to know about me? It's like, not in that way. Not in that way. You can keep that to yourself. Well, look, I'll, I'll tell you one other thing that, that we're going to magically do because we believe in magic and we have places, you know, in our cosmic minds for magic, religion, and science is that we're going to alchemize these topics, this field of subject matter that I think we've done a really good job, uh, you know, digging into with, without uh, destroying. Uh, we're going to alchemize that into uh, its relationship to the Christmas story and the nativity next time. I'd, I'd like to, yeah. to draw that that outline that I'd like to plan a, a, a target, you know, for the blowgun dart. I think it. I think it can be done. I think that that's great. That sounds good. You want to know what happens to a world with no porn? Yeah, I'm really. I okay. Well, first of all, I wanted to because you're grumpy today. I wanted to to leave it really open ended about how you kind of construct the frame. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in in that. That's that's going to be the highlight for me, I think. But always you come back with something interesting. So lay it on us. Well, in this world, the way that porn disappears is through some combination of alchemical magic and computer virus technology. So we're saying for this thought experiment that no porn exists for about a year. So what that does for us is that it gets rid of the easy answer of, well, people would just start making porn again. For some reason, they just can't. They'll film a video uh, and the file gets corrupted as soon as it hits their, you know, their hard drive. Okay, right? okay, right? okay, so yeah, I'm you, with you. You can't make porn, right? Okay, so the first thing that happens is uh, bespoke clothing lines for women disappear. Fat mannequins are gone. All mannequins go back to looking busty and svelte, right? Because people, people have no way, other way to get this, this out of them. And I thought back to when I was a kid and the kind of things that I would look at. There becomes a fetish or obsession for finding these corrupted tapes and attempting to piece the glitched out screen back together into a pornographic image. So people begin to become attracted to television static and snow oh. and different colors. And <clears throat> there's a run 
from every major corporation in the United States to become the new source of porn without being porn. So you mentioned Coca-Cola. Yeah, the polar bear and Santa Claus are out and Mrs. Claus is 23 years old. She's got a crop top on. Everything suddenly becomes hyper-sexualized on the one hand. But on the other, it gives a reset and it gives an opportunity for a select group of people who have been completely overstimulated and oversexed in this very hollow way to suddenly become really interested in chicks' ankles again. Right? So you start to see little cults popping up that are all about you know, wearing the Amish outfit and just showing a little bit of leg. And I think in the same way that I'd mentioned earlier, shutting down the internet for a solid year would just be an overall good thing. I think the same could be said of porn. So I'm not, I'm not anti-porn. I'm not anti-porn at all. I think that uh, I'm very libertarian with that. Whatever you want to do with your body, if you're a consenting adult, I got no problems with it. But there is a line where it has tipped into uh, part of this mental mush that we've been talking about. So I think that the disappearance of it would create new fetishes. I think that advertising would go back to being way more sexy. I mean, perfume commercials, come on. They can't show anything because it's TV, yeah. and they know that as soon as they do show something, it's corrupted. That's your entire advertising budget gone. And it would also, I think, create the way that uh, alcoholics occasionally, when they begin to abstain from drinking, uh, they just go completely straight edge. And I think a lot of people, once they snapped out of it and got back into a regular, you know, sort of sexual ecosystem, uh, they would actually become more, more <coughs> excuse me, more puritanical uh, than than you might think. That's that's my I, that's my thing. I love this. Well, you know, the Puritans really did have fetish cults. Women with big ears were particularly oh, admired, really? and men with big noses. Right. You know, so I that that was a yeah. really known and well documented <laughs> uh, phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, because everything else was covered up. Right. So you, you know, you got you got to figure it out. But I do. My favorite part of it is I love this idea that, uh, that pornography in its own way might be one of the key elements that has led to body positivity movements in general, right? Because porn is everywhere, and it's porn of people of all sizes. Outlets for sex are no longer located in advertising. So advertising has to move on to something else that isn't sex-based to sell its products, which is like, hey, we look just like you, you fat, blah, 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 whatever. But I think that the disappearance of porn, it would fill that niche immediately. We'd go right back to it. And I think we'd be better off for it, to be honest with you. Okay, well, I've made a note to myself about, uh, in addition to tying embodiment, disembodiment in with Christmas and the nativity for next time, linking body positivity and the gender unicorn with, with that as well. Because yeah. um, there's something, there's some interesting things there, and people will jump to conclusions. 
uh, hearing that just as I've said it now. But it will become clear, and I think not only uh, defensible, but kind of uh, inarguable. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think there's something really, yeah, cool to look forward to there. But well done on that. I think that that is, uh, that, that's uh, kind of my take on what would happen too. Okay. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. It means that I'm on the right track if that's the case. What are our tips and tools for today? Okay, the tool for this week is building on what I mentioned last time of how to construct algorithms that work in principle generally, but we would then tailor them to our own particular uh, mind association patterns, because that's what we're trying to find. I mentioned last week about um, a little experience I had just seeing old movies with... Um, Sharon Stone and Kathleen Turner and how that sort of helped me set up a, a new way of thinking of certain kinds of, of algorithmic frameworks that, that connect deep associative patterns that have nothing to do with either of those actors at all. Um, so I'm calling this sort of process creating algorithm skeleton keys or uh, blue elephant keys. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, there were zoos around the country, but certainly the Oakland Zoo would give out plastic blue elephant keys. And at each animal enclosure, the kids would insert the key and a tape-recorded voice would come on and tell you a story about the animals uh, as an educational tool. And I think that we all need to come with blue elephant keys you know someone should be able to just you know turn on and get a little bit of background about us but this is a simple algorithmic tool and the goal is to find a little bit more traction and precision of description of deep deep associative patterns that are personal to us but here's a very generic framework, and I found this works with people. I don't know why. I think because it does speak to embodiment and location. But think of three, why? Because it's more than two and less than four, magic number. Three inspiring cities. Inspiring cities. That's a key word. And now when you've got that in mind, Think about three disappointing cities. And my emphasis here is on that, that strange oscillating tension between inspiring and disappointing. I don't know why the idea of a city is, is such a good reference anchor point here, but it is. It is. And it gets people thinking in, at a distance from their own you know, personal ego thing. It's a little bit sort of distanced and it's bigger and it is social. And as we've been saying, we, we live in just a fundamentally, relentlessly social, uh, socially fixated era. But I think if you, if you build that little framework, so three inspiring cities, three disappointing cities, Whatever your response as you develop that out, brainstorm that out a little bit, you start to see a flow of energy backwards and forwards, connections, disconnections, and they begin to form a larger uh, framework that I would suggest is, is a clue to some deeper 
um, algorithmic associative network patternings. That's my tool. I love that. Inspiring. Uh, if I could give it more thought, Tokyo comes to mind. Okay. <clears throat> I jumped instantly to Hong Kong. Yes, I get you. Yep, yep. Uh, Mexico City. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll say uh, Paris. Maybe not the okay. It's interesting, and I hope listeners pick up on the fact that inspiring does not mean easy to deal with. You know, it can be overwhelming, it could be dirty, it could be confusing, it could be just dangerous. You know, there are lots of downsides, uh, but nonetheless, that field has some integrity to it. There's a membrane there with some, some strength, you know, also some flexibility, but nonetheless... Whereas I think the disappointing, uninspiring side raises some other really interesting sort of questions. And you get a different resonance, you know? And you start to think about some deep values that you have. Because that's what this is. It's really exploring associative patterns that, that form the foundations for values. And, and we're so fixated on those values, we often don't understand the underlying structures within ourselves. Uh, I could, I, this is just personal experience. I'd have to look into more cities, but uh, my the most disappointing and dead black hole of a city, with all due respect to any other listener who lives there, uh, is Odessa, Texas. Yeah. Okay, see? Yes, yes I have. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. <laughs> Yeah, well, see, but this is the this is the the tool at work, and now you could really flesh out what those 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 cities symbolize and how those associative patterns work, and you could really begin to build if you had a you know a good sized wall that you could paint on, you could really visualize that. You could start to create some kind of mosaic map mm-hmm. of of connections and values and beliefs and experiences and when you were there and you know it becomes dimensional you know it does what are your three uh well for it's strange first hong kong was my 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 first one uh and that's a very dirty and and polluted city now ironically hong kong is you know means in english fragrant harbor supposedly you know does it really yeah, I don't. I don't it's think I'd want to fall right? off a star ferry into Hong Kong Harbor yeah. right now. Yeah, it's it's definitely fragrant. I could imagine. I could imagine that there's quite a few smells going on in Hong Kong. Oh dear me! Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, for for disappointing cities, uh that instantly gets me into my conflict over 
Indianapolis. You know, do I find Indianapolis disappointing or, or does it veer over into darker sort of twilight zone terrain for me? You know? Okay, okay, see, see, this is, and this is also, this shows, I think, listeners as, as concretely as we can by, a, you know, effectively radio, that, that it's a physical matter of adjusting things. Yeah. It's like we're building a kind of Harry Parch musical instrument and tuning it as we're making it, you know, right. and you're adjusting it here and there. I mean, it, it has a physicality to it. And, and you can make adjustments and keep, you know, adding to strings. So say if Portland can be viewed in, in is where we kind of have a, a junkyard stringed instrument, uh, you know, there might be some other sort of things on that string, other beads and little percussion instruments. We want to hang off that. And it becomes not just a dimensional in a two-dimensional sense, like a map or a mosaic. It starts to become sculptural and really embodied and that is the goal of of the of the the real mind experience is full embodiment in the cosmos yeah you know? yeah excellent what is your tip for today okay well this is this is related but it's even it's just it's as the as the difference between our tools and tips are this is uh pragmatically um simple hopefully but the advice here is to get intentionally Hayoka, you know, the, the trickster yep. Native American sort of clown figure, Hayoka stupid with the sheer blunt music of language to try to sneak ahead of semantics. Mm. I like that idea. I want to be sneaking around. That, I was one of my great joys as a kid, you know, hide and seek, sneaking you know, sneaking around, mm -hmm. but sneak around semantics with pure raw intuition and uh, a hopefully tuned ear. I mean, for example, self-help and self-harm kind of sound like each other. Yeah. If you didn't know English, if you were outside the system, it would musically sound kind of related. And maybe those concepts are mm. you know mm -hmm. maybe they are maybe there's some self-help and self-harm you know uh, it there's a lot of ways to look at that yeah but everything that is musical about any language at least anyone that i know the ma the 10 major world languages i think this holds up this claim anything that is musical has some underlying mysteries of coherence yeah you know, yeah. so we've got to trust sometimes in our experiments and searching. We don't stick to that level. I'm not saying, we, you know, everything that's, you know, I'm not saying, you know, that. But use homonyms. Use just that stupid Hyoka step back mind to query some deeper levels of meaning. Because in doing that, I mean, that's why the... Ioka is a, is the sacred clown sort of figure because that kind of logic ends up being very powerful. It's a powerful tool anyway. Yeah. We don't have to use it all the time. I'm obsessed with the idea of the Hayoka and also I think 
that you are making an argument for uh, rap music when it's done well, the association of words, not just in the way that they rhyme, but occasionally when rap gets really good and layered, there can be double, triple entendres, associations between words and concepts that you might not have thought of before, and it is meaningful. It is meaningful that some words are pronounced, words for two different things are pronounced the same way in English. There's something going on with that. Yeah, well, I'm glad you say that because I, I rag on rap music, or well, certainly relatively contemporary rap music, a lot. Yeah. And I did want to open that up and say that I think that, yeah, we, we you know, to keep uh, open-minded about the value and the power and, and to some degree the cultural magic in that form because it does obviously link to some very ancient traditions. It sometimes is working with, with great effectiveness, even in my view now. Um, but it, it is something to, uh, well, to put on the plus side of, yeah. of, of rap. I'll have enough criticism when we get to our great debate about mm -hmm. that. But um, mm -hmm. it is, I, I, I agree with you totally. I agree with you. Yeah. Um, well, I think that that's a great tip. I think that that's uh, super important. And I think that, I hope that people are catching on that the tool and the tip are often uh similar in their in their kind of end goals of making connections and expanding the the mind world it just, it feels like a light that gets brighter right like a muscle that gets a little bit stronger like a room that gets bigger uh house guests that get friendlier it all it all feels like it's moving towards that goal I hope so. I, I'd like to think it does. And I, 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 I try to share things that I have some real confidence. And confidence is a key word for the uh, evolving discussions for, for the new year on memory, consciousness, and dreaming. But I think that that's certainly something I'm striving for. And I try to share things that I've really feel tested, you know, a bit, um, that I have some real confidence in for, for what I believe are good reasons, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and the segue to the dream is, is this is so much about where we're at. And I, I did not fabricate that. That's just how it rolls out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I, I found myself in, uh, I was actually knee deep in water. I was wading through this huge civic mirror fountain surrounded by these really intense sort of brutalist modern buildings uh, some cubes there were some domes and these abstract statues made of basalt and maybe maybe titanium very uh, impressive but alienating mm -hmm. uh, at first a little bit like Brasilia the you know the, mm -hmm. the sort of fabricated city in uh, in Brazil, uh, Canberra, the, the capital, federal capital, national capital of Australia, but most especially Walnut Creek, California, mm. which is where a lot of Silicon Valley money has ended up. And there's at first a kind of retro visionary good vibe to this scene that I'm in, even though I'm wading through this water. But there's also kind of ominous edge and a sad, a genuinely sad tinge uh, 
you know, kind of in sort of J.G. Ballard, William Gibson decay, you know? Mm -hmm. There's something just not right. And I'm wading through this water and it's getting more, ugh. You know, there's the lily pads, yes, but there are license plates and bird's nests made of astroturf. I thought that was really just, that really got me. I think that's just a wild image. So I'm expecting to see some things like giant carp, you know, maybe beautifully fluorescently colored, but maybe, you know, because of the license plates and the shopping carts and, you know, the, the debris, maybe also kind of scarred and bloated, you know, really kind of disgusting, you know, overblown goldfish. But no, I come upon a very different kind of creature. It is a huge carnivorous tadpole thing. <laughs> it's the size of a good, you know, a good sized freshwater crocodile, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm naturally concerned. It's yellow mm. in color, okay? But it's a really sickly shade of yellow. And it wasn't until after I woke up that I, I really got a fix on what shade it was. It reminded me of the piles of sulfur on the wharves in Vancouver. There's a big sort of uh, chemical industrial quarry sort of wharf system uh, on uh, the eastern side of Vancouver Harbor. And this beautiful soft sulfur yellow these big piles, you know, they're just left on, on the wharf docks. Wow. And they turn, uh, they get this sort of incite insinuation of like a bile duct green after heavy rains. It's very disturbing. And the, the piles of the beautiful soft yellow sulfur remain, but the green seems to be like kind of a bad aura after that rises up from the piles, the pyramids of the, the sulfur dust after the rains. And this creature has insistent little malformed arms that really disgust me. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're tiny, okay, but they're frenetic and not in a playful way. It really doesn't mean me well. Mm. And it reaches out to me through this filthy sort of water, because it's all become kind of filthy now. The, any sense of it being a mirror fountain is long gone. And it says to me in this William Burroughs routine voice, the creeping disease of narcissism is upon you, you dumb death sucker. Dumb Death Sucker would make a great title for a novel. That'd be great. Are you sure this isn't a big sperm? Well, you know, I know I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm just sure of those filthy little weird arms and this big sort of you know jaw system and a kind of gelatinous body. But it looked like it could do harm and damage, and it looked like that was its intent. But I got a feeling that as revolted as I was by the sight of it, it was even more repulsed by me, mm. you know? 